1: Welcome to episode 51 of the Spiritual Minded Mom podcast. This is Darla. And before we jump into the interview that I have for you today, I wanted to let you know that today on the podcast, I'm interviewing Jamie Hutchings, and we spend a good portion of the podcast talking about suicide. So I wanted to give you that warning that if you have little kids listening, you may want to put your hear- earphones in. And also just to tell you that I really wasn't expecting this interview to take the turn that it did and to have it be so focused on suicide. It really wasn't my my plan, but it's just kind of where the interview went. And I thought about editing a lot of it out, but as I edited, I really felt the spirit that this was a message that needed to be shared. I in no way am an expert. I'm not a professional. I don't have a ton of experience with dealing with suicide myself, and so in no way shape or form do I want to pretend like I really know a whole lot about this the only thing that I know is that I have faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ and I think this episode offers that as a hope in so many situations that have to deal with people taking their own life and so I hope that you will listen to this episode with that in mind and that you will be able to find some hope from Jamie's story that I'm gonna share next. So thanks for tuning in, and here is my interview with Jamie Hutchings. Welcome to the Spiritually Minded Mom podcast. This is Darla, and I am excited to have a great interview for you today. My guest today is Jamie Hutchings, and she is a convert to the church. She's also a cancer survivor. Uh, She's a wife and a mom, and a motivational speaker, and also a mental health advocate and you may have seen her on Instagram at surviving the bubble is her handle and she has so many great things to share. I've been able to hear her speak twice and I really love what she has to share and her insights about motherhood, so I'm excited to welcome Jamie to the podcast. Thank
0: you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: This is so great. Okay, so start let's just start off really quick. Tell us a little bit more about you and your family.
0: Um we were I love to tell people, well, youth in particular, when I speak, I like to play a little game with them in the beginning because they're going to get to know me so much over the next hour that I like to just play a little game and tell them some fun facts about me. So I always start off with two truths and a lie. And one of the things I say is I was born and raised in sin and you always see the (laughs) hush over the group and they're like, um, do we want to say anything about that one? And then every once in a while, I've had people answer it right, that I was born and raised in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good so, yeah. <laughs> I was, my husband and I actually met in high school. We didn't like each other at all. We had similar friends and it wasn't until he came back from his mission that we were just googly eyed for each other. And we actually got engaged after 17 days and then we got married two months later. Wow. And the rest is happily ever after, as they say. No, not really, but <laughs> we cry, we right? <laughs> right, right. 19 years. I have two teenage daughters. So I try to speak teen language, <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> always work. But, and then I have a son that's 10. Um, we're in Queen Creek and we've been out here for about nine years now. We absolutely love Arizona. We are desert people for sure.
1: Yes. Okay. We can relate on that. I've been yes. here almost 20 years. Okay. Well, I was born in Arizona, then I moved away and then I came back. But yes, I love Arizona. It's just the greatest place. So it's amazing. And it's given me the opportunity to meet you and to hear you speak a few times. So that's been a really great thing.
0: That's so awesome. That warms my heart that you've heard me speak a few times. Yes,
1: <laughs> it's, I, I've, I've loved it. And that's why I have wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time. Okay. So let's talk about motherhood. When we were getting ready for the interview, you told me that you kind of have a theme or philosophy about parenting and it's great. So I really want you to share this with
0: everyone. (laughs) Okay. I kind of laugh when I get that question, like what's your parenting theme or philosophy? Like I really laugh because I wish that I could sit here and tell you I'm the most organized person. I'm so good. We're on schedule every day. You know, I've been really good at that since day one. But let's be like, if I'm totally honest, <laughs> it's kind of a crapshoot, honestly. Like I remember very clearly the day that they sent my first daughter home with me and I cried and she cried for the first 24 hours. Yeah, And I was just like, what did I do? This is not, it wasn't at all what I expected. I think I expected like, like a Cinderella moment, you know, like little birds chirping in the air and (laughs) and all the beautiful things that you expect to come from babies. And it was terrifying. It was so scary. And so I really feel like that's how I kind of started off in the motherhood department, was terrified and have no idea what I was doing. So Um, my husband and I wish also that I could say, oh, we've been on the same page from day one. We're, you know, we're so connected and in sync and all that. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it kind of flies out the window with every age and every kid. And they're all so different that there's not one size fits all. It's not cookie cutter. You have to be different with each kid if you're going to help each kid succeed in their own individuality. And so it's, Really, I mean, it's a day by day thing for me, honestly. And I don't know what my kids would say my parenting philosophy is. We're we're kind of a loud family, so when I hear "never yell in the home," oh my gosh, that one gives me, that one gives me <laughs> anxiety because I just naturally raise my voice, and so. But we all kind of do that, and we we love loud, and we fight loud, and that's just who we are. And we have come to. Be okay with all of that.
1: Oh, I think that's good. And I think, I think, you're kind of in the same stage of motherhood that I'm in. And you get to this point and you look back and you go, yeah, I don't have anything figured out, right? No, nothing. <laughs> because you they pretend. are you, you they all so different. <laughs> and once you've gone through those different stages with different kids, you go, oh yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. Because you just, when you think you have it figured out, something shifts. Oh, totally. Right? Yep. <laughs> right. And totally. I, love, I love that you can just say, you know, we're loud. Like, that's one of the messages that I always try to share on the podcast. Like, be who you are. Don't try to, you know scroll through Instagram and see what everybody else is doing and think that that's how you have to be. Be who you are as a mother and use the gifts and talents that you have and the the way that you are. You're you're there for a reason, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Your kids need that. Obviously, our Heavenly Father would not have put them with you. Okay, so let's talk about your growing up and your experiences because I mentioned at the beginning that you have an Instagram account and your Instagram account is surviving the bubble. Yes. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about why that is your handle and what it means.
0: When I was nine, I was diagnosed with the rarest form of leukemia for a child, and I was given a 25% chance of survival. Um, They had immediate treatment for chemotherapy it was a really severe heavy protocol for chemotherapy and so they had to put me in quarantine the the back end of the hospital wing for pediatric oncology had three rooms and when they walked us back there they they explained it a little bit but i don't think that i really grasped what was going on until i was there there were there were three rooms and each room had one wall that was a curtain of Clear plastic vinyl that hung in front from the ceiling to the floor, and that was in place of the wall and When I walked in, there were two little boys in either end room, and they moved me to the middle room and it was kind of like an e t experience like when they quarantine off the house and yeah you know, They have to walk into this room where this spray goes on them and, you know, the air and it gets everything off. And then they dress up into these giant hazmat suits. Um, They sterilized me. And so they stripped me down and got all the germs off of me and put me in the room. And when they were doing this, they were dressed in these medical hazmat suits. And so once I stepped inside the room, I was not able to leave for three months. And so we called it the bubble room. It became known to my family as the bubble room. And I lived in that room for three months. And I watched everybody walk away and go live their lives and come and go. And I got to stay. And my beautiful view was of the hospital parking lot in the back of the <laughs> hospital. So I can't even say that I had an ocean view. I was in LA, but, but they because my immune system was so weak from the chemotherapy, I had to have no human contact while I was on the chemotherapy because even the smallest cold could have turned into pneumonia and killed me. My we- my immune system was so weak.
1: So were people were people able to come into the room, or did they have to put on a suit? They to had to put on in? a suit. Okay, so head
0: to toe, it was it literally. I just made some um, a man put one on last night at a fireside that I gave for youth, and it's always great to watch them do that. But it's it, it's a paper, you know, not breathable at all. It covers the entire body. They had to put on three layers of latex gloves and a mask. Wow. So I didn't touch, I didn't have skin to skin contact for three months.
1: So you're only 11 years old, right? At this ten. point. Oh, 10. Okay. Uh-huh. So how did, how did that experience change you? What, did you? what did you learn? Can you look back and say, I learned these lessons, even though you were only 10 years old? Absolutely. I mean,
0: you grow up really fast when something like that happens. Yeah. When you're literally facing life or death, you, you change. And I'm grateful for the person that I became coming out of that room because I remember at the time being terrified and lonely actually one of the things that I used to do, I don't know if you, this is totally going to date me. I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember hug a bunch? No. <laughs> so in the eighties. Okay. It's okay. You're okay but I it. was around Hanging in the eighties. <laughs> no, I am probably much older than you, but I do not remember that. Okay. So there were these little, they looked like teddy bears and they were these, um, stuffed animals. And there was a, a Cartoon where the girl that had these hug a bunch, she had a mirror in her room, and she could touch the mirror, and the hug a bunch would bring her into their world.
1: And okay, they I lie. do not remember that. Oh my gosh,
0: you have to now. You now <laughs> I'm now gonna, gonna have gonna look to look go Google that. And then when you go inside this land, it's just pillows and jumping and happiness and you know rainbows everywhere. Kind of similar to Care Bears, but this whole other world. Yeah. And I had a hug a bunch in my room, and I really remember praying. And I knew that I had enough faith that God was going to make my hug a bunch come to life and keep me company. And so I remember distinctly, you know, feelings of dread and fear and loneliness. Um, But I also remember walking out of that room with my head held high. And I had, I don't even know really how to explain it. I had the most invincible feeling walking out of there that I could conquer the world, that I could do anything. And so I kind of came out with, you know, it was two ends of the spectrum. I came out scared and not knowing if, you know, it was gonna come back, if I was gonna get back stuck back in that room, or if I was gonna live forever and be this amazing person that, you know, had a story to tell.
1: So during this time, Was your family already members of the church or did you join the church after that?
0: No. So I have been baptized three times. So I like to say- (laughs) Okay, well, tell us this story. All heavens, I'm there. (laughs) Um, When I was a baby, my mom was Catholic with her parents. And so I was baptized Catholic as a baby. And then a few years later, my mom started attending a born-again Christian church. So when I was seven, I was baptized in my backyard- in my preacher's backyard swimming pool, and then um, when we when I started to get sick, I didn't know, but my dad was actually talking to missionaries and praying and reading the Book of Mormon. He had grown up in the church, but he fell away when he was very young. Most of his siblings had, and so he didn't really he I mean he didn't attend church ever. When I was growing up, I had friends that were Mormon because I lived on a street with you know, the church right across the street from my house, but I didn't know anything about it. And then when we came out of the hospital, we started taking the missionary discussions and that was it for me. I just knew that, you know, God saved me for a reason. And that was the reason. And I was supposed to be baptized. And so my dad baptized my mom and I on the same day. And then we were sealed in the temple a year later. Oh, that's,
1: that is so great. So is there any part of your story with cancer that kind of led your family to that? Do you, do you feel like that was maybe
0: uh, uh, something I, that brought that about? I do know that my aunt was very active at the time. And one of the first experiences that I've ever had in my life with real true prayer was when I was very first diagnosed, my aunt Came to the hospital, and she brought all these men with her. And I was nine and a half at the time. And all these men walk in with white shirts and ties, and they looked like they were, you know, FBI or something. I didn't know what they were doing there. And she said they want to say a prayer. I said okay, like I was used to prayer. And then all of a sudden, they put their hands on my head, Mm. and it was the strangest feeling. At first, I was very uncomfortable, and then I I don't remember the words that were spoken, but I remember a distinct warmth washing over that entire room and it wasn't anything that was could be denied. There was power yeah. in that room and God was there. And I think that that may have been a turning point for my dad and I know when you go through something like that, you turn to God. Right. And my mom was always and always has been, you know, very spiritual and believed in God and Christ and so she turned she turned to God and I think it was just we don't know what to, we don't know where else to go you know that's right right it draws you to your knees and then you you really have nowhere else to go
1: yeah so true well i think you know there's probably a lot of people thinking oh what a great story she had cancer she beat cancer her family found the gospel and they all <laughs> lived happily ever after Wrong. No. <laughs> right. Nobody's yep. life turned out like that. So, and yours, you're no. Wouldn't exception. that be amazing? Wouldn't that be this? Okay, so we can just say thanks for sh- thanks for coming. Then we're done. No, Close that's the not book, right. <laughs> so, so that isn't what happened. But you did beat cancer. You're here today, yes. and you had a lot of struggles after that in your. Te- you were uh, going through your teen years, having survivor guilt and mental health issues. And so, tell us a little bit about those struggles and what you learned from that time in your life.
0: Uh, the first real struggle that I started to notice was um around fifteen, and that's when the survivor's guilt kicked in Of course, i didn't know that's what that was at the time. I mean it wasn't until recently actually that I discovered what that was and have researched a lot of that um, But as a teenager, we were attending a lot of cancer fundraisers, and I was kind of this poster child for mm-hmm. surviving and Um, For the first few years that we did that, I was on cloud nine and I was so happy to be there. And yeah, look at me. I'm so special. This is so amazing. And all of you can be like me. And that kind of fades as you get older and start to realize life isn't like that. And so um, as a teenager, I started watching several of my friends die of the same type of leukemia that I had. And in fact, when I was in that room... The bubble room, the two little boys on either side of me passed away. And they passed away while I was still in the room.
1: Did you know did you know that when you were there? Did that impact you at the time?
0: No, I mean, they were very careful at the time to, you know, to shield me from a lot of that. I did figure that out pretty quickly. Um, but I don't remember a moment of them coming in and telling me, you know, yeah. what happened. I just noticed right. that Jimmy and Ashton were gone and their families weren't coming around anymore. So I know I was old enough to kind of start putting two and two together. Um, right. But definitely as a teenager, because I was so involved with the cancer community, I was meeting so many people and becoming friends with people. And most of my friends would relapse. And that's what would be the ultimate, what what ended up you know being the reason that they passed away. And I wasn't relapsing. And so I realized... At fifteen, that I was very angry, and my whole um, attitude changed in life, and I became no longer wanting to be this this special you know i didn 't want this special story i didn 't want to be the only one surviving anymore, and for fifteen years, I was the only long term survivor in the entire state of nevada and that weighed on me, and it weighed on me really heavily. And then the PTSD kicked in, and I was in um, high school, and don't we all love high school? <laughs> That's a crapshoot too, isn't it? It's like yeah. one or the other. You're either right. gonna love it or you're gonna hate it. And I had a few you know, good friends, but I started getting severely bullied in high school. And it was coming over into my home, it was coming into church. Um, I was fighting with my parents a lot because I was just so angry, and I didn't want to be happy, and they didn't know what to do, and so it just became this dark place of I don't want to be here, I don't I don't fit in anywhere, I don't know who I am, I don't know why I'm here. Why am my biggest question was why am I here, mm-hmm. and all these other kids aren't. And part of the survivor's guilt too was going to these functions. And seeing parents who had lost their children. And for parents of newly diagnosed children, I was hope. I was, you know, I was this image of, yes, my kid can get there. This is hopeful. This is beautiful. I love this. And then for somebody who lost a child, as I grew older, I was now something that they would never have. And so I started to feel that and I started to see that. And I just, I just went to a really dark place and I just didn't know, I didn't know where to fit in. And I, and I thought that God was disappointed in me. I thought he was thinking, I gave you this second chance at life. You beat all odds. You know, I've called other people home and I left you there and you have this amazing thing to give. And I wasn't, I wasn't giving anything. And so I thought that his, my relationship with him changed very quickly because I thought that he was disappointed in me. And over the years, obviously, you know, I know that that's never the case and he never left me. And I know that now.
1: So did you have a point where you just kind of hit rock bottom and then oh, you were able to move, sure. move, move back from there and develop that relationship again?
0: How did that look for you? So when I was 18, my, um, like I said, the bullying came across into my home. I had kids calling and threatening to kill me with a knife. I had kids at school telling me that if I stopped breathing, there'd be more oxygen in the room for everybody else. Um, I had lots of problems happening at church because my church, we all went to the same school. And so there was a lot happening everywhere. And so one night I just decided that I was done. I, I had enough pain. And so my parents went to Um, I guess on a date, I don't really recall where they were, but I was 17 and a half, almost 18, and they left for the night, and I went in the kitchen, and I had a note in one hand, a paper in one hand, and a knife in the other, and I just decided I was done, and the only thing that I could bring myself to write on the paper was I'm sorry, because I knew, even then, I knew what it would do to my parents. But I couldn't see past the pain and the darkness, and there was no light at the end of my tunnel and i didn't I was so I was numb in so many ways and so hurt in so many others, and I sat on that floor for hours, and the only thing that got me up i there was no angel or loud booming voice that came in the room and you know told me, "You're going to live this amazing life. Get up. What are you doing um it was just this distinct feeling of hands on my shoulders. And it was a weight that was put there. And I just felt it's okay. It sucks right now, but it's going to be okay. And I really think that I've heard it over and over many times before I finally had the nerve to get up off the floor. And I wish I could say that was my one rock bottom, but that was, it really was. I think that that was the lowest point. That was the point where I really truly was going to end it. But then I did get to that point two more times over the next two years. And until finally, by the third time, I was like, okay, this is it. I'm I'm obviously not going to do this. I've planned it. I can't bring myself to do it. And it was out of guilt. It was lots of guilt. I couldn't do that to my family. I couldn't do that to my parents. I couldn't do that to God. And I I truly at the time felt, where am I going to go? Like I, I really questioned, am I going to go to heaven if I do this? If I take my my own life, would this life that you've given me, are you going to accept me? And so then even in that moment, I'm finding this place of not belonging anywhere. And so It just was this numbness of okay, fine. I gotta just keep going. I'll figure it out, you know. And and I wish it was this this everything changed from there. And it was you know all uphill and so beautiful. But it depression is a a lifelong struggle for me, and it is a day by day thing. And um, it wasn't until I met my husband had this really quick whirlwind you know romance and got married that things really changed for me because now i was no longer just in this world alone i had somebody by my side and i had somebody that i felt responsible for and that i had to stay for and so um things kind of started shifting and we had we got pregnant on at 1 year and so within 2 years i was 24 and married with a baby and everything changes when the kids come around. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Okay. So I want to talk about how your experiences have affected you as a mother. But first I want to ask, and maybe you don't know the answer to this question, but this is what's going through my mind because you know, we live in the same area. There has been a lot of teen suicide going on lately. Sorry. It's okay. And my husband and I have talked about it. I mean, we have teenagers. We've, we've talked about, you know, what, what did your parents do To help you? I mean, what can we do if we, or we're a young women's leader, or, you know, our neighbor, we know a teenager that is struggling the way that you did? Is there
0: anything that we can do? What can we do to help? My parents didn't know. They had no idea. They didn't know that I was that dark until probably 10 years ago when I actually started talking to them about it. Okay. Um, I was very good at pretending very good. In fact, I w- I wanted to be an actress. I knew yeah. that I was so good at it that that's what I wanted to do. I thought this is my life's dream. This is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I was born to be because I'm so good at this. Um I had a smile on my face. I attended, you know, I dated, I went to dances, I was in the school play. I mean, I was uh very good at hiding it and that's the scary thing about it because I do I do know the family of one of the boys that took his life and they had no idea. And honestly, there's, as a mother, there's nothing scarier than that. They really truly had no idea. And she talks very openly about it. And she's involved in lots of, um, she's trying to get things changed in the school system and she's proactive and she's doing amazing, but she's doing it because she doesn't know what else to do. And she didn't, she had no idea. And so she's yeah. very active about, she will tell you, just talk to them." Right. And the, the thing is, I, you know, even saying that, I have to laugh a little bit, because I have two teenage daughters. I have one that does not tell me anything, and then I have one that tells me everything if I pull it out of her. You know So um, talking to your teenagers it sounds so simple, but it really isn't. This is a conversation that you need to be having. It is hard, and it is not something you want to talk about and I think a lot of people have this fear, and it, it's a very real legit fear that mm-hmm. if you bring it up, that all of a sudden it's going to be on their mind. yeah you know what I mean that if if we talk about this in a family night or if we all sit down and gather together and say, you know okay, let's talk about suicide it, it's this this fear my whole body tenses up that my kids are now going to know something that they didn't know before. And I'm the one that brought it to their attention. And I don't think it could be further from the truth because for somebody in my position, for somebody who has been to that place, I will tell you this, nothing anybody could have said would have changed me wanting to sit down on that floor that night. And I wish Mm. that I could say, Differently, I wish I could say, Oh, all I needed was a hug, all I needed was right. somebody to say, I love you, and you're enough and you're amazing. I, I wish, but it's not that simple. Yeah. It's, a, it's a conversation that has to be happening all the time. And I do know that a few of the fights that we had, you know, I'm sure my parents just felt like their hands were in the air. We've tried, you know, they'd taken me to counselors, they'd talked to me, they'd they just didn't know. They didn't know yeah. what else to do. And so I think at at some point, hands were in the air and like, okay, well, she's 18, she'll figure it out kind of thing. Um, but I just think that it just has to be this constant conversation. Keep an eye on them. If they start... The, one of the big signs of depression is retreating. So if they stop being social, not wanting to hang out with their friends, if they start... Going into their room and watching TV for hours and hours, hanging on their phone for hours and hours. You know, um, that's a that's a really big sign. Just keep them out of their room, keep them in the big right. space with laughter and noise and around family, and just keep them where you can physically see them as much as possible. But just keep that conversation going. And I think that if you're a parent that's even remotely aware that something might be happening, right there is already going to make some changes because right. if you are aware, then I promise that's like a prompting from heavenly father to tell you, you need to keep an eye on them and just yeah. keep prayer open and just tell them over and over and over. And you can't tell them enough how loved they are right? and yeah. how much they're needed, how much you need them in the family, in this world, in, you know, for you. Yeah. I think, I think that's a very, a very important message to share that we
1: that we just show them that we love them but also help them rely on the savior and know that he's there because that's what helped you right you Absolutely. felt those shoulders and i went to a funeral recently of of someone that took their life and the message that i got from that was that the savior's work for that person was not done
0: mm-hmm.
1: he it was not done the atonement is still in effect and so for someone that is struggling with losing someone who, who has committed suicide, we can have the hope that the Savior is still there for them. His work is not done. Absolutely. And he knows everything that they went through. We don't know what's going on in people's mind. And so there can be hope in that. And that's what I walked away from that funeral feeling like, because sometimes it feels so hopeless. Like, what can I do to help people? Right. There's, you know, is there really anything that I can do? And you know, we have, we can turn them to the savior and let him work that out. No matter what the outcome is, the atonement is in effect. The atonement of Jesus Christ is there for all of us.
0: And that's the one thing that I do know now is that I would have had a place. What I was going through was not something that I brought upon myself and it wasn't something that I could have changed in that moment. It was something very real and very chemically happening to my body and the Savior knows that, and Heavenly Father knows that, and I know without a doubt that He's waiting in, with open arms to take the pain, so to take true. the pain. So there's there's this horrible stigma behind suicide, and I've heard a lot of people talk about how it's a selfish thing, and how could they do that to their family, and how could they, you know, and it can't be further from the truth i think that the pain a lot of the pain is i'm not enough i'm a disappointment i'm not doing what i need to be doing i'm not i'm not the person i should be and and they struggle so much with that pain that it's really hard to see through that curtain it's a fight it's a fight every single day and some people you know, when it comes to that point it's literally they have no other option they just feel like they have no other option. So there's nothing selfish about it. And yeah. I know Heavenly Father is there and waiting. And I don't think that that was His plan for them. He's happy to have them home. Yes. He puts them to work. And you know what? They work in their families that are left behind. I always think of that
1: scripture in Isaiah that says, We can bring beauty for ashes. Yes. I mean, what could be more tragic than losing a loved one in that way? Right. And the Savior can, can take that and and make something of beauty, whether it be like your friend that's out helping other people or, you know, I don't know. I don't, I haven't experienced and I wouldn't even pretend to know what that's like, but I've seen it around me and, and I'm, I'm grateful that you're sharing that message that you're going out and sharing with teenagers and with parents that there's hope and, you know, your hope to them, just like those, those parents that saw you as a cancer survivor, you know, now we we can look at you and say, there's hope and, and we can, we can get through this. And I, I know when we were talking before the interview, you told me that one of your biggest strengths is faith. And first of all, I love that you can recognize that in yourself, Mm -hmm. that you can say, I have faith, but how did you get there? And, and how are you able to still say that to yourself?
0: I don't know if it was a place of getting there. I think that I remember even as a little girl going to my born again Christian church and just dancing and singing so loud that Jesus loved me. And I just knew from a very young age that he was real. And I just always had this warm feeling that he was real. And if there's one thing that I can say turned me towards that, For sure, like that cemented it in me was that I felt his presence in that room. He was the only presence I felt sometimes because my mom couldn't stay overnight. She had a run, she stayed at the Ronald McDonald house down the street. My nurses couldn't stay overnight. They were, you know, hoping that I would sleep through the night so lights would be out and I would just be laying in that bed for hours and he was there and he never left me. And one of my favorite pictures is by Yong Sung Kim. And he is, he he drew this gorgeous painting of the savior standing on the water. And the vantage point that you have as the person beholding this art is that you're drowning. You're the drowning person that's under the water. And he's reaching down with his hand. And my savior. That could not have been a more perfect depiction of my savior in my life for me, because there's been so many times that I feel like I'm getting further and further away from him and I'm drowning more and more. And I feel like there's been times that I've done that to myself and I've pulled myself away from him. But I know that no matter what, when you look up, he's always there. He doesn't leave. He stays where he's at and he reaches down. He will pull you out and he'll help you. Then yeah. you can start fresh, you're going to get there again, you're going to drown again. you know that's the beauty of of life is the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs. you know he loves us no matter what he loves us through it all. That's one of the things that I love talking to the youth when I first started sharing this story i my intention was to share my miraculous story. I wanted to share my faith and my savior, and I wanted to share this story of leukemia and this thing that I had overcome and help people to walk away knowing that there's modern day miracles. And I had never shared my suicide story before. And that first fireside I went to, I felt very strongly. There were a few other things that happened to get me to that fireside that were almost miraculous. But standing there in that moment, I felt, share this story, tell this story. And I told it for the first time. And immediately after the fireside, this beautiful 16-year-old girl came up to me, all smiles, and oh my gosh, that was so amazing. Can I hug you? And I hugged her. And I instantly felt the weight that she had been holding on to. And she broke down in tears and sobbed and said, I was planning on taking my life this weekend. And that right there, that sealed it for me. That was why my family father has been telling me over and over and over to share my story and to be a speaker and to go talk to the youth. And then I found out later that night that a boy in the audience had gone to the state president and said, I need to talk. I was planning on it this week. And so it's just sometimes, sometimes that's all it is, is they need to know, one, that they're not alone in their pain. Two, that there is hope. That's a big one. That one's hard as a parent. You, it's hard for you to give somebody hope. Um, but they need to know that there is hope. Hope in the Savior. Hope that things will get better. There is a light at the end of this tunnel. High school ends. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a miraculous thing that is only four years <laughs> because it does end. And life can get so much more beautiful after. But I also... I hone it into them and I tell them over and over and over, talk to someone, don't hold this in anymore. Talk to someone. And there's so much help out there. And that's the amazing thing about the internet and the you know, technology that we have nowadays is you can chat with somebody online and it's anonymous. You can yeah. get on a phone and talk to somebody in your room quietly. Nobody has to know, but it's somebody that's there for you and that will help you. I like
1: what you said about high school is only four years.
0: Like we can get through this, and and as
1: as mothers, you know, we can turn our children to the Savior. We can we can turn him to them. I know one of the things you told me was that you you like to look at your children through the Savior's eyes. How how do you do that? What does that mean?
0: Oh goodness, sometimes that's in a moment of anger. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's like. You just keep struggling with the same thing over and over and over with the same right. kid. And you just have to look at them and go, okay, I brought you into this world for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love you. I know my savior loves you. But two, but one of the, the things that I love to do as they get older, I mean, when, when you have babies in your arms, it's so easy to see heaven. It's so easy to feel those really strong spiritual moments as a mother, because you literally are doing what you were created to do, and so those babies are a gift from God, and there's no questioning that, and I feel like as they get older and they test us and they fight with us, and you know, we go in the closet and cry because we know we're ruining their lives, um, and we're failing on you know huge scales, it's those moments that I have to stop and I have to say a prayer and I have to say, I love these kids. They're my miracles and I love them more than I love my own life. And I have to switch around my way of thinking a little bit. And as they've gotten older, it definitely helps me to stay um, close to the spirit for promptings for my kids. If i really sit and think about what does the savior want in their life what is it that he is trying to get them to you know to see what is it that he's trying to teach them and if some way i can think about that and i can keep you know my prayers and keep my heavenly father close then there's times that i am prompted for you know the one thing that they need to hear and that's why we are the mothers for the children that we have because we know how to raise them. We know how to love them. Yeah. And I love that. they come to us with all their quirks and their problems and their struggles because it's a strength in us. Whether we see it or not right away, we have the strength to help them get through what they're going through. And that's why Heavenly Father sent them to you, you know, in particular, you specifically. Yeah. We're I love individually that. created for you.
1: I love that message. And sometimes I think with teenagers I can almost see heaven a little more than I did yes. when they were a baby because you start to see who they are and it's amazing. It's it really so amazing. Is. They my kids blow me away like they're so much better than I ever was and they're just you know it's just fun to see those great things that that heavenly father created them to do and then to see them start to take those steps towards that is I think really exciting and really great. And never underestimate that you're th- their mother for a reason, right? We mm-hmm. talked about that at Absolutely. the beginning. We'll bring that back around here at the end. And I would just love to know one final thing from you before we okay. wrap up. Actually, I would love to know a lot
0: more things. Like we
1: could talk all day. But I would just really love to know how you have seen and felt God as your partner in motherhood.
0: There's no denying God in motherhood. I think that the only reason that my kids are alive today is because God is with me all the time and not in a, you know, crazy way, but the fact that me being the imperfect woman that I am, that I don't even know how to keep myself together sometimes have somehow managed to make these beautiful humans. And the amazing thing about them getting older and watching that is to experience life all over again through their eyes and to see the choices that they make and even sometimes the mistakes and, and know oh, this is part of their journey and it's so fun to watch and to see. And I know a 100% that I would never have been able to get through any of this without God and without my savior right by my side pushing me along and helping me because I have days, you know, I have teenagers, I have days, (laughs) many days that I literally still will go sit in the bedroom or the closet and cry and say, I am going to ruin them. They're going to be in therapy for years, blaming me for things. And somehow we keep going and somehow we still love each other unconditionally, no matter what. And that love is always there. And that's where I know I feel that spirit so strong in my home when we're all sitting together. Sometimes it's watching a movie. Sometimes it's reading scriptures, Sometimes it's saying prayers. But I, that spirit in a family and as a mother is just something that you can't take away. And it's not something that can, comes from this world.
1: Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. I am Thank so grateful. You. That you would take the time to come on and be interviewed. And I know that your message of hope is going to help other people. So thank you, Jamie.
0: Thank you so much. This is a beautiful thing that
1: you're doing. I love it.